The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm sitting with uh, Matthew Knotts, um, who's the author of On Creation, Science, Disenchantment, and the Contours of Being and Knowing. And it's a book that came out uh, in this Bloom, um, the publishing house Bloomsbury Academic um, in the year 2020 in the series uh, Reading Augustine, uh, which is a series that tries to use Augustine and um, for addressing current questions or issues in a way using uh, bringing St. Augustine to the table of contemporary and current conversations. Um, I've done a previous discussion on a book in this series um, by Sean Hannon um, called Belatedness. So um, Matthew has uh, been gracious enough to to come and, and join the discussion. So I'll ask him to intro- briefly introduce himself and um, you know explain how he came to write this book. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm very grateful. I'd also like to mention that the editor of the series, Miles Hollingworth, I think has done a fantastic job of really bringing together scholars to do precisely what you just described to address contemporary questions grounded in philosophical, theological, historical research on Augustine. The way that I got to the book came through a number of ways. So I'll talk about a few of them here, and they might not exactly seem to fit together, but I'll try to uh, bring these threads together. One thing um, concerns my undergraduate experience. I had the good fortune of sitting in a small uh, seminar on Dostoevsky's Brothers Karamazov. And when I say small seminar, I mean it consisted of the professor and me. But it was fantastic because this uh, professor, he was a professor of philosophy, but he had studied Russian and Russian literature extensively. He had read Dostoevsky, so he knew the material very well. And as you probably know, one of those key themes running throughout the Brothers Karamazov is, let's say, this conflict between knowledge and wisdom. So Dostoevsky uh, portrays Ivan, for example, as very knowledgeable, very worldly, but someone who perhaps lacks or is even blinded to deeper truths. And that always intrigued me. I thought, how is it possible for someone to have extensive knowledge and intelligence, yet not be able to understand things which seem to be ultimately true or fundamentally true um, from a Christian or theological perspective? So that was one of those seeds that was planted in me. I was also curious, I suppose at the philosophical level, but even just the broader cultural level about how disagreement occurs. Why is it that people disagree and why is it that they have such trouble empathizing with others? It's one thing to 
disagree and say, well, I, I understand your argument, but I still disagree with it for these reasons. But sometimes it seems to be more fundamental than that. So that always intrigued me or, or even bothered me as well. In my undergrad days as well, I read McIntyre's After Virtue for a seminar. And uh, again, McIntyre has a kind of genealogical approach to questions of reason. And so it really occurred to me that when I'm thinking about reason, I might mean something very different from someone else, even though we seem to be um, speaking the same language, uh, as it were, we seem to be using uh, the same words. Obviously, McIntyre addresses this more directly and proves justice, which rationality. So that became a really compelling idea for me, which also led me into uh, postmodern philosophy and mid 20th century critiques of the modern dispensation. Finally, uh, the, the current world uh, in which we're living, uh, one in which data is proliferating at a remarkable rate, uh, knowledge is more accessible and available than ever, but that doesn't necessarily translate to greater understanding. And so I wanted to see what that relationship is, if I could, the, the relationship between, so to speak, information, data, knowledge on the one hand, and then understanding or wisdom or insight on the other. So all of these things coalesced um, uh, several years ago when I started my PhD in Leuven in 2013. And one of the reasons that I looked to Augustine is that it seemed to me that he was addressing these kinds of questions. He had perspective on why people could disagree with each other so fundamentally. He had an idea of what our reason is like and how it could be shared yet also lead to uh, differences in perspective and opinion. He also crucially had an understanding um, and, and to anticipate a little bit in his distinction between sciencia and sapiencia, how knowledge can actually blind people to truth and lead them to um, arrogance or, or pride and, and actually prevent them from growing in wisdom. And I found that a very compelling idea and eventually was able to see how that's, that's much deeper um, in the philosophical tradition, going back all the way to people like Heraclitus, one of the earliest philosophers. So that brought me to Augustine. I think my interests were more philosophical, but I found my way into theology, uh, especially because Augustine was one of those people with whom I, I wanted to begin that conversation. Um, so that's how I started to frame my dissertation. And then once I had that encounter with theology, uh, it started to become more historically grounded. And that challenged me as well to expand my methodology. Thank you. This is a very nice and uh, clear uh, background. And, you know, reading the book, I hadn't real, I hadn't realized that um, uh, there was a connection to Dostoevsky. But I, I think the, the point you make about uh, 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 you know, uh, dry re uh, rational rationality that you encounter in Ivan that lacks lacks wisdom, or a broader, deeper understanding of knowledge, um, is really Augustinian, right? Really Augustinian, and uh, I'm I'm glad you 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 pointed that out. Um, this being said, then can you maybe present a you know? Uh, broad outline frame, framework of the book, uh, 
uh, as it were, starting from outside to the inner core of the book. And, you know, a little bit of the argument. Um, or that's one way to, I'd like you to speak. And then the other one maybe is uh, what you realized after you had written the book like you had this were your initial question and then what you realize after you uh, read you did the research and wrote the book yeah please uh, please matthew certainly i can comment on both of those together i think they interweave since this book arose from my dissertation so i think the the two threads you suggested were interwoven to give you a sketch of the argument, I start from thinking about what reason means for Augustine. And people often talk about illumination theory in Augustine. Obviously, that's a theme that extends throughout much of the pre-modern tradition. It's a biblical idea. Within Augustine, he's specifically interested in the divine light and even more specifically, the light of the sun as in the S-O-N son, uh, the son of God, which is radiating within the human being. And then also the clearing away of darkness within the person who is blinded by sin and finitude. So there are three major parts to the book. And in that first part, I talk about Augustine's Christology and his theory of creation. In a couple of locations, Augustine distinguishes between what I call a principal sense of creation and a gradual sense of creation. This is obviously common through other theologians as well. Uh, Augustine talks about how, on the one hand, the world is given to be at a particular moment, so principal, but at the same time, it continues to unfold and grow throughout time. So that's the gradual. Other people talk about creatio continua. That seems to me to be essentially the same idea. So after talking about creation, it moves to Christ. So Augustine's theology of creation, I think, is really one of recreation, that God creates the world through the sun, the world falls away through sin, and so the sun takes flesh, and then recreates the world through his passion, death, resurrection, the establishment of the church, the sending of the spirit, etc. That being said, all of these deeply theological and ecclesiological ideas for Augustine are also epistemic, ethical, moral. We're working at a time in which all of these things, of course, interdigitate. So the next step that I take is to see how the pattern I just described is replicated at the level of the human being, who, of course, is created in God's image and likeness. So first and foremost, people, human beings, have, uh, for, for lack of a better term, ideas present in the mind. So the light is there. There are certain ideas, fundamental concepts, which allow us to reason and think. Obviously, this is very present in the early Augustine, who's deeply Platonic um, and, and engaged in dialogue uh, and thinking about the conditions of knowledge, which actually I, I think is a really interesting connection with later philosophy. And that was something I took up as well. But then also the gradual sense that we are finite, we are imperfect, we are often blinded to our own desires or preferences. We mistake uh, um, you know, truth for opinion. And we, we have this tendency uh, to need to purify our vision so that light can really shine through. So I found that a really compelling idea because it really, I think, reverses, especially the modern conception of knowledge that we're kind of in this neutral space 
and we have the capacity to go out and find knowledge and catalog it without any kind of interference other than our own, uh, let's say, laziness uh, or some such. For Augustine, uh, it, the reverse is true. The world is there. Um, the light is shining. The question is, can we see it? And Augustine has a few images for this. For instance, he talks about how uh, people can be standing in the sunlight, but uh, be blind to the sunlight. He uses the image of cataracts in the eyes. He talks about sin in terms of these blockages in the eye. And so it's the medicinal effect of Christ and his grace that is removing these things. So I found that a, a really compelling way to think about reason. And again, to address some of those questions uh, that I mentioned earlier. So when it comes, so for example, coming back to Scientia and Sapientia, Christ himself is the wisdom of God. Augustine is drawing on John. He's drawing on the book of wisdom. He's talking about other, um, other New Testament and Old Testament passages which identify Christ with this wisdom. Therefore, to think according to truth and reason is to think according to this eternal wisdom. This is obviously not merely an abstract wisdom, but one which has become incarnate. So in some way, human reason needs to be connected with this particular, unique, unrepeatable event of Christ in history mediated through the body of the church. That's the first part. And I started to go more deeply into Augustine's theology in the second part, because as I was going through this, I realized that as we're talking about Christ as sapientia, we come to a few philosophical conundrums, which Augustine wrestles with uh, at various parts of his corpus. And two of these, I think, are time and vision. So when it comes to time, obviously, we want to talk about the eternal wisdom bringing the world into creation. But it's not only that, it's the fact that if we think about how not just the human being is created in God's image, but God speaks the world into existence, there's the idea that these eternal vestiges of God are present in reality. We are made for God. Our hearts are restless until they rest in God, as Augustine famously says in the opening lines of the Confessiones. So how is it that we, who are finite temporal material, can aspire to that which transcends us in principle? Vision, I think, is an analog to that. We talk about seeing things, but Augustine, uh, for instance, in uh, his one of his commentaries on Genesis talks about vision at a variety of levels, that we have this physical sense of sight, but really what's crucial is this deeper intellectual sense of sight. A uh, simple example he uses is reading a language. You could see the words on the page, but if you don't know the language or you don't have a sense of syntax, etc., the meaning will be lost. And really the physical is bridging us, is that medium to meaning, insight, and interpretation. And that challenge is radicalized if we're talking about seeing, let's say, the uh, son of God in the flesh, if we're seeing um, eternal reasons present in the world. And then obviously, when we think about that, from the sort of grand eschatological perspective, Augustine is really interested in what it means for us to see God uh, in heaven, the, the beatific vision. So those two um, aspects of Augustine's theology of creation, I explored them, and it came to my attention, I, I think two things that then could be put into consideration in the context of contemporary philosophy and theology. Uh, 
One of them concerns that idea of uh, seeing uh, the presence of God in the world, uh, for instance, God's vestiges. And I use that term deliberately because Augustine uses the term vestigia uh, in a technical sense to talk about how God's um, vestiges, the, the signs of God are present in the world. And at a couple of locations, Augustine talks about this dialogue with the world. He talks about the world as possessed of text-like properties. And that reminded me or, or brought to mind a, a couple of things I read um, in, uh, I suppose, postmodern philosophy. So Gadamer um, and his hermeneutics, and that formed a major part of my dissertation, and how, yes, Gadamer is interested in the interpretation of historical texts, but he thinks that more fundamentally hermeneutics is about this capacity to see meaning um, contained within the physical world. Similarly, Charles Taylor talks about uh, what he calls text analogs, that there are things that uh, we, we interpret or we engage with them like we would engage with a text. Um, so we need to interpret, we need to read, we need to challenge ourselves to um, proceed more deeply into the material. So I, I looked at Augustine's passages and I talked about some contemporary philosophers and theologians who try to think of the world, let's say, not in the dispassionate modern Cartesian sense as a kind of grid and, and extension, but really trying to think of what the world could be like if it's imbued with meaning and beauty. And also one of the challenges of the book is how to do that in a way that respects um, contemporary science, advances in knowledge, obviously since the, the 400s uh, CE. Uh, and so I think hermeneutics and phenomenology provide a really interesting way of doing that, that we can talk about these deeper layers to reality without having to compromise anything um, uh, that, that empirical science would um, want uh, to say to us. And then again, uh, oh, please, please. Yeah, yeah, Matthew, sorry to interrupt here. Um, I thought it would be about, please, you know, don't forget your thread and let's let it just be a detour. Um, maybe it's a good moment to ask you about the method or methodology, because it seems to me that you somewhat privilege hermeneutics, right, which is fascinating, uh, given the fact that, uh, you know, there have been recent uh, attempts to read Augustine in a phenomenological key. Right. Um, yes. And, uh, you know, especially by Jean-Luc Marion and, you know, I studied under him and I was in the, you know, cauldron of the, you know, writing of his book, Lieu d'Histoire and, uh, and then, uh, um, you know, student of Marion, Matthew Driver, mm -hmm. and then also Ryan Coyne's book about uh, how a lot of uh, Heideggerian terms uh, or or intuitions can be retraced to Augustine, and it seems to me you 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 you're looking for a different route. Uh, is that correct? If that you're you're somewhat privileging hermeneutics, and I was going to ask you if that's true and why. Yes, I I think that's true. What I would say is that it's at least when we're looking at it from or at least when i'm looking at it through augustine i think the hermeneutical and the phenomenological are there together mm -hmm. and i think the phenomenological as you as you rightly say is really brought out and i i think that the hermeneutical side is there and then maybe not as 
pronounced, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. in the sense of what I describe. So, for instance, mm-hmm. in Book 10 of the Confessiones, when Augustine is talking about this dialogue with nature, it's deeply phenomenological, it's deeply experiential, and I think what's motivating and sustaining that is also this broadly hermeneutical method, and mm-hmm. that was what appealed to me the most. Mm-hmm. 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 Yes. So I think they go together in Augustine. I don't think that there's any... Mm-hmm necessary opposition there i think it's just a a question of emphasis or maybe what has been brought to light versus what hasn't Mm -hmm. yeah yeah and um, is this this a good moment for you to um, go into more detail how um um you know the methods and ideas of i i noticed got you you've used gadamer but also you've uh, um uh, used uh, Michael Fishbein, who's also yes. one of my mentors, and whose books, uh, um, you know, Sacred Atonement and um, uh, Fragile Finitude, uh, are excellent, excellent examples of, uh, as you say, a hermeneutical, phenomenological approach, which uses uh, readings of the tradition uh, and to address current questions in a very genuine way. Um, so is it, could you, or maybe we, I'll let you finish your argument and then we come back and expound on these methodological issues. Um, yes, in fact, I think um, in a sense you, you've anticipated where I'm going, so we might even be able to um, blend them together, but to... To, to go back to that part about, let's say, interrogating the universe or reading the universe, um, as, as I like to call it, and, and that was um, in the original title of, of my dissertation, reading the universe with Augustine and Gadamer, finding that deeper meaning and sense to it, which, as you rightly note, is central to Fishbane. And I talk about him, obviously, drawing on the Jewish tradition for that. I look at uh, Jean-Louis Chrétien, who obviously is a phenomenologist, he's drawing on Augustine, and he's talking about this idea of uh, call and response, la pelle de réponse, that the world is speaking to us and anything that we do is always a response to that. And so I wanted to see if I could put myself in that small uh, conversation to uh, mm-hmm. uh, insert myself, uh, uh, shall we say. And one thing that I took from it, and, and I think this is in Augustine, and I think that this is really, uh, to go back to phenomenology, really interesting because it does seem to be a fundamental human experience, is that if we are attentive to or mindful of our experience, if we engage with the world around us, we find things like the fact that we are finite, that we are limited, that we are called beyond ourselves, uh, that we have this sense of connection with the world around us. We have the sense of beauty, meaning, purpose, which seems on the one hand to come from outside of us, but also to resonate with something inside of us already to draw it to the surface. One specific idea that I took was finitude, and that's where I, I think I tried to really take a step beyond Augustine. Uh, Yes, looking at hermeneutics, uh, especially, but also uh, phenomenology in the final chapter of the book. To give just a a brief amount of context, I talk about human finitude as a prejudice in the Gadamerian sense of the term. And as you may know, when Gadamer is talking about prejudice, obviously there's nothing... 
racial or ethnic imply. He's simply talking about a prejudgment. And the reason he uses that term is to say that the modern world tried to eliminate any presuppositions of, of any kind and to find uh, a solid foundation. And Gadamer is saying, well, not only is that not possible, but um, that, that doesn't really reflect how human beings learn in the first place. We have an orientation. Yes, it can expand, it's malleable, but that's a starting point. So he's talking about prejudices in the sense of our backgrounds, our cultural outlooks, um, our education, all of those sorts of things that make us who we are. And he obviously, Godmer, that is, has an epistemic um, interpretation of prejudice. I think in some ways, and, and I, I really would need to look more extensively at Gadamer for this, but I, I think that there's, let's say, an ontological sense to prejudice as well. And that's where I really wanted to, let's say, bring out the implications of both Augustine and Gadamer in that final chapter and say that to be finite is a prejudice or a condition of knowing. So we are finite. That's how we are given to be. We are situated in time and space. That forms the basis through which we know. Nothing wrong with that per se, but that's the place where we start and grow. And I think that um, if we look at our finitude without realizing, let's say, the broader scope of creation, if we forget about the sapiential ground of the universe, then finite, finitude becomes something that blinds us to truth. We're going to think uh, about things in, in terms of, let's say, the wrong hierarchy or the wrong interpretive framework. Uh, in Augustinian terms, we're going to look at sciencia um, apart from or in opposition to sapientia. We're going to privilege creation over the creator, and we're going to miss truth uh, in the process. Um, so I, I wanted to see uh, and think about how finitude could have that sort of double-edged effect. It could lead us away, or it could be the uh, launching point for a deeper exploration, which is in some senses asymptotic, that we're, we're constantly going into this deeper search for God. I think that's deeply Augustinian. And again, to anticipate a little bit, that was one of the key results of my research that I found really interesting about Augustine, that as dogmatic as he can seem to be, especially later in his career, I think there really is this dynamism to his thought and, and this um, hesitation about closing off possibilities. And that's where, uh, that's one of the things that led me to um, the project that I, I just finished, in fact, not to go too far afield, but I, I just finished my second book for this same series. And, and one of the key themes of that is this kind of questioning uh, skeptical uh, Augustine. But to bring it back to this book, um, th that was that was really interesting to me to see whether and to what extent we could really bridge the gap or, or find an intersection between postmodern philosophy and this reflection on the conditions of our knowledge and the concern about whether we can find truth, and then to use an Augustinian framework to develop and think about that. And that's where uh, I try to bring everything together in that final chapter of the book. And maybe it's a good point to offer a summary of the conclusions just to flesh it out a little bit more in detail, um, you know, because you did an excellent job explaining the question and what brought you to the project. And maybe you can flesh out a little bit more what you learned in hindsight, so to speak. Yes. One thing that 
occurred to me was how to return to Scientia and Sapientia. I think that Augustine has a way of helping us to address questions of knowledge um, and information versus wisdom and understanding uh, in the present. So one way of looking at it is that God gives creation to be, particular things are in their order, and human beings become obsessed with uh, their own interests and the way in which creation can serve them. So Christ then becomes this, let's say, interpretive key, this hermeneutical key for understanding the entirety of human experience, the entirety of the world. I didn't talk about this too much in the book. It, it was more or less presupposed by it, but it, it also led me to reflect on methodology and how, let's say, theological answers to these sorts of philosophical questions might really have a place, especially if they can do uh, explanatory work. One of the other results, and I, I talked about this in uh, a lecture a couple of years ago for McGill University, was that Augustine's way of thinking about the world supplemented or complemented by Gaudamarian hermeneutical way of thinking about the world gives us, um, I, I think, some insights into ecology and theology. If Augustine is right that the world has meaning and purpose, and let's say the modern uh, denies that, then it would make sense why uh, one might plunder the resources of the world or change uh, one's interaction with it. And so I think one of the challenges uh, in, in a positive sense from Augustine is to say, let us reconfigure our relationship with the world. Uh, yes, it, it has certain pragmatic benefits for us, but it also reminds us of that initial sapiential basis for reality, that all things are given to be in this order. And human beings are unique for Augustine insofar as they have the option to follow that order and to create and expand, but within the parameters that are given or to rebel against it and therefore cause um, destruction uh, within uh, themselves, within communities, uh, within uh, their environments. And again, um, you know, or let me put, maybe I'll, I'll pause on this after this point and, and then we can we can always go further depending on how, how you'd like to proceed. Um, again, I think that issue of finitude is so interesting in part because it's so so much a preoccupation of postmodern philosophy and theology and I, I really wanted to do more careful thinking about that in terms of the implications for introspection and how we think about knowledge it seems like there's this uh, constant dialectic that we know something but we don't know enough about something we're driven towards something uh, that we want to know, but but how can we ever know it? And we're constantly searching, constantly moving. Uh, so uh, again, I, you know, it, it's something that Augustine speaks about. But I again, I think it's such a fundamental human experience, uh, something that is is difficult to deny from any, uh, let's say, background or perspective. And it it gives us a way within our contemporary world to, uh, let's say, bring theology to the table to address questions of uh, experience, phenomenology, um, epistemology, and then obviously the ecological question, which I think is more related to chapter five. Um, as I read your book, um, I had the impression that you focus mostly on epistemological issues, and you but you you managed to show how for Augustine knowledge uh, 
has a much broader meaning than for us today. The, and in a way, you 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 are in the vein of someone like Jean-Luc Marion who has strived to broaden the, the meaning of reason, right? And he has you know, gone back to Augustine to reinforce this point, showing how how reason has this broad meaning for for Augustine, um, and then how you know, in a way, Augustine precedes Heidegger in this attempt. As I was reading, um, I was struck that you don't dwell too much on how, for Augustine, the issue of knowledge is and and the pursuit of truth, right, is related to the question of love right and he's a very intricate and complex and uh discussion of of love right i mean the the the, the fa- famous uh saying nemo non intratur in veritatem nisi per caritatem non intratur in veritatem nisi per caritatem you cannot enter truth without love and charity um did you want to comment a little bit on on how you see this connection between, let's say, love, charity, caritas, and the pursuit of truth, and uh, and uh, the question of sapientia in Augustine? Yes, thank you. That's that's a very interesting question. A few things come to mind, uh, and in some ways, they uh, I suppose are. Uh, responses to one of your earlier questions about uh, something I took or or something I learned, um, especially that affective dimension to knowledge and rationality that you suggested a moment ago. One thing that comes to mind, and, and this I think is present in the book, at least implicitly, is how the ethical and the epistemic for Augustine are so closely bound together. So when Augustine, for instance, talks about what one loves, uh, there, there's that's that's one way of emphasizing knowledge. So if one's love is for the um, created over the creator, then one's behavior, uh, of course, is going to look a certain way. Um, But then that also relates to one's knowledge or lack thereof. Um, Without going too far with this, and and this is just stated loosely, there is a kind of platonic character or Socratic character to Augustine's theory of knowledge and morality insofar as in in a certain way, not completely obviously, but there is a certain sense in which um, ignorance or lack of knowledge uh, can uh, be related to one's uh, misdeeds. Furthermore, Augustine, so going back... Or, or misplaced love. Yes, exactly. Misplaced loves. <laughs> exactly. Um, so, so in other words, the, the intellectual error is also an ethical error or vice versa. And that relates to the more basic disposition. And I think that returns to the very first thing I mentioned uh, about Dostoevsky and and knowledge versus wisdom, uh, that one's starting point is not thinking or reasoning, but it's one's um, disposition. Does one love? And if so, does one love God to the detriment of self, or is it vice versa? It seems like for Augustine, ultimately, one really has to have one or the other. Furthermore, and and going back to Confessiones 10, which I mentioned a moment ago, 
I find it so interesting that when Augustine is asking about God, he begins by saying, what do I love when I love my God? He could have said, what, what is it that I believe in when I believe in God? Or what do I think I know when I know my God? But he says, what do I love when I love my God? And then he proceeds into this very intricate, let's say, esoteric uh, philosophical discussion, some of which I've addressed here. But the, the font of his uh, discussion of knowledge and phenomenology is that basic relationship with God. I think that's also related to what I said earlier about sapiential reasons, so to speak, being present uh, within one, that there is always that relationality between God and the soul, um, between uh, the, the person as the image of God, and also that relationship specifically with the Son and with Christ insofar as he has united himself with all of humanity. So I think those things are there. That being said, uh, your your quotation is, is well taken because I think one way of looking at it is to delve more deeply into specifically caritas and also the conception of core, which I, I've looked at a little bit uh, in, in my later book and how the heart becomes this locus of the dramatization of uh, both the ethical life or, or the life of conversion versus aversion, uh, as well as the epistemic. So I, I think that that gives us a, a really clear insight to how those things come together. Final point I'll, I'll make on this is uh, there's, there's a good article by Isabel Boucher from 2018 in which she she's mainly talking about freedom in Augustine, but it's related to love insofar as uh, whether one, let's say, converts to God or fails to convert to God depends on one's inner disposition. So is one in the right state such that something good will actually seem good to the soul? If one is in the wrong state, then something good will actually seem bad. For instance, someone who is, you know, who has a headache and doesn't really want to see the sunlight. That would be, loosely speaking, like the person who's in the wrong epistemic place. So there's that deeper ethical sense, which is a part of the epistemic, or rather gives rise to it. And I think that also raises some really interesting but difficult questions for Augustine, which obviously he would want to resolve through uh, things like grace. And... That, that, I think, is a place where my research has yet to go, but it, I think it raises difficult questions for the kind of project I'm, I'm doing. Yeah, I, I think this creates a good segue to uh, my next question, because, you know, uh, and the question is related to how much we can, uh, let's say, learn from Augustine or appropriate some of his ideas or retrieve some of his ideas for our purposes and context today, right? As you pointed out, this very mechanical, uh, very uh, limited and, and restrictive view of rationality. And I think the question will be exacerbated even more by uh, the whole, you know, AI issue. <laughs> I mean, all of these questions will be somewhat put on steroids. Mm -hmm. um, now, uh, the proviso being that there are some ontological and uh, 
let's say, epistemological assumptions that were in place for Augustine and are not in place for us anymore. One of them is definitely the ascetical dimension. And uh, this dimension is not really taken into account by, let's say, postmodern readings of Augustine who go in there and, you know, they find his skepticism very appealing or his notion of distensio and fragility. And uh, we forget sometimes that, uh, and I'm not saying you're doing that, that his entire project is, so to speak, quote unquote, constructive, right? It is about achieving or reaching uh, Vita Beata, ascending, uh, you know, interior ascent uh, from which is spiritual and uh, 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 to achieving the, the visio, the, vi the vision, as you said, right? So we, we, we somehow forget that the framework in which Augustine operates, right, in our readings, um, and, uh, you know, for example, one dimension that, I mean, I think you mentioned it a few times, uh, ascetical, uh, but but he's, uh, and, and I think it's related to your very good discussion of distensio, right, as the, as the condition in which we find it in uh, ourselves. Uh, let me see how you, you, you call it, the ontic entropy, I find, mm -hmm. um, right, the effect of time. Right, it's he, you know, on on our, con, uh, um, on our condition of createdness, yeah. and then the whole issue of being dispersed, distensio versus intensio, um, and then your excellent discussion of pride uh, and and uh, of sapientia. Um, um, uh, prideful knowledge, prideful wisdom, um, superba, right? Pratienza. Um, um, so it seems to me that there are nuances and dimension and aspects there that we do not really pay attention to, in, or or maybe we're not even able to, right? And my, my whole question is going towards, you know, why, how far is our let's say, uh, discussion or encounter with Augustine just, well, as an aside, and how far is it something really that allows us to to bring something or retrieve something back to the table? Um, you know, since, uh, and, the, and I didn't even mention that the other dimension that is lacking for us is this hierarchical view of reality, of ontology. Mm -hmm. I mean, our, our world, uh, we, We've we've we're done with that ontology. Mm -hmm. It's not it's not a Neoplatonic hierarchy anymore, and we in Augustine subscribed to that. So we're like in a way, long story, we're lacking asceticism and we're lacking this uh, hierarchical view of reality. <laughs> Absolutely, I, I think that that question of asceticism uh, as a starting point is so fascinating in part because it allows me to uh, get on one of my soapboxes a little bit about Augustine and asceticism. I believe I mentioned it in the book. I, I know I discussed it in the dissertation. Um, Augustine's polemic against porphyry and omne corpus fugiendum, that every body, every physical thing needs to be fled. And Augustine is so critical of this, so harshly critical 
um, because he, he sees it as a denial of the goodness of creation and a denial of the goodness of Christ's flesh and his unity, of wisdom's unity with the human condition in particular. Uh, I, I I think that's really important to to address. Uh, you know, let's say not receiving certain parts of uh, Augustine or at least Neoplatonism in general. That I don't know if scholars, let's say, who are just broadly aware with Neoplatonism, really take that into consideration. Um, because if even if one looks at Plotinus, I, I think that there's he's there's a greater affinity between him and Augustine than with Porphyry. And Porphyry, I think, gives, let's say, a certain shade to that tradition. So Augustine, when he's um, talking about, let's say, the uh, discipline of oneself and, and not getting things out of order, he still wants to say that creation is good and all of creation is good. Of course, in, in Genesis itself, after God creates at each stage, God says it is good. And then at the end of all things, he says all of it together is very good. So everything has some kind of role to play. And Augustine is really emphatic uh, about that. One takeaway, so to speak, that, that I get from that is that in the world in which we live now, we try to see things as intrinsically good and we put them in their proper place and we understand them to borrow uh, from uh, De Doctrina Christiana uh, to see them in terms of that uti frui relationship, that things um, can be used uh, for the sake of good, um, but only God is to be enjoyed uh, in himself. So I think that having that sense of boundaries and precision is really essential to that understanding of creation in sapientia. I think your point is well taken, that that's really difficult uh, in the present. And one thing that comes to mind, and I'm, I'm speculating and thinking out loud, and I, I'm sure Augustine would more or less say this, but I don't know where, but it, maybe one challenge for us now is to think about hierarchy, not necessarily ontologically, but first and foremost in terms of service. That's something that I discussed when I was relating ecology to my work on Augustine, that Francis, for instance, in Laudato Si, really wants to get away, obviously, from the dominion model, but he's even skeptical of the stewardship model uh, he's somewhere between stewardship and a, a sense of communion with the natural world. And I think if we think of ourselves as with a unique capacity for freedom uh, to serve others and, and even to serve creation itself, then, then we get that kind of um, paradox of inversion, that, that the servant is the greatest in, in the model of Christ. And so perhaps that's one way of, I don't know if recuperate is the right word, but maybe trying to preserve some sense of difference, if not hierarchy, but at the same time, accept uh, where, let's say, postmodern philosophy would, would leave us with uh, a real difficulty in talking about hierarchy. That being said, I'm not sure I want to give up hierarchy entirely. I'm not saying you do either, but your, your question really uh, sort of um, generated some thoughts in me, which I, which I just presented somewhat uh, haphazardly. But that, that, I think, is a really interesting question. Also, to your point, Augustine's entire, um, you know, view of how you are called, you are being summoned, right, 
you uh, the creation, right? That incredible passage or in in the confessions where where creation is speaking to you, and and you are be you are not able to perceive that call. You are not paying attention. You are not aware. I think that would be very uh, pertinent, right, uh, today for various reasons. Um, also because of our maybe inability to to hear anymore the calling, right? Uh, because we are so absorbed in, you know, technology and, and the virtual, right? So that there is this... Uh, urge in Augustine to to pay attention right to to move from curiosity to attention to awareness to yeah. hearing uh, as opposed to you know just projecting and affirming your own uh truth right truth is calling right yes um uh, veritas the whole idea of veritas lucens the truth that is calling and that you are supposed to receive right this this entire attitude of receiving as opposed to projecting yes uh, i think that's also one aspect that we could maybe uh learn from augustine and make it relevant today Absolutely. Um, and, and your point about curiositas, I, I think, reflects another, let's say, outcome of my research. Uh, as, as Augustine says in the Confessiones, and, and I'd have to look more carefully, there, there are a couple of good articles on this recently of how Augustine, among others, are, are critical of curiositas. But speak in general terms, it seems <laughs> to me that what Augustine is sees as curiositas is a kind of armchair interest in questions that we want to know things but we don't want to sacrifice anything to know them we want them to be delivered to us we want them to be palatable and easy and as soon as they challenge us or become difficult we're not interested anymore and we discard them so difficulty certainly it could be a kind of intellectual difficulty um i i suppose we know that uh, from our experience as educators that there are some uh, times students really can uh, so to speak hit a wall if, if they find something too challenging but i think augustine's sense goes deeper and again this relates to uh, your question about caritas earlier namely that for augustine sapientia knowledge in its in its true sense has to change us at a fundamental level that it demands something mm -hmm. of us it, it calls us to go back to that phrase uh, you just used and there's that part in in the confessiones in which augustine talks about how there are those who love to talk about the light until it shines on them and then they're not so interested in the light anymore. I think that's that's such a great encapsulation of how Augustine sees knowledge and sapientia, that if we want to know something, it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us a lot. And again, in very, let's say, Christological terms, it's going to cost, cost us our lives. We are going to have to die to self, but that resurrection will be true knowledge um, in, in the sense of a reconfiguration, um, a... Uh, let's say, a, a reawakening or a conversion of our perception of the world in which we'll begin to see and interpret things uh, completely accurately. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. Wonderful. Um, yeah, and I, I think that's also very pertinent for 
academics, right? This this courage of Augustine to really put it, you know, and 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 you know, unbear his to 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 show his soul, right? To be so honest and and in the confessiones, right? And and, and sometimes we are very guarded and very afraid to put ourselves at stake in what we study, right? We are somehow very good at exempting ourselves. And uh, and that leads to all kinds of issues, cognitive dissonance, and yeah. and yes. <laughs> as we well know. Um, before we end, um, I wanted to ask, what is your, you mentioned the second book that you work on. Uh, so I, I, what is your current project and how does it relate to this the book we're discussing now? Uh, just as a reminder to the listeners on creation, science, disenchantment, and the contours of being and knowing in St. Augustine. Yes, please. The work that I just finished, in, in a sense, is quite distinct from on creation, but it arises out of some of the questions that occurred to me after the research was complete. So, for example, that tension uh, between the eternal God and uh, the temporal human being and how that gets played out, um, the constant searching for truth, the difficulty in finding any sense of self and stable identity, all of these things were in my mind. And this, this is somewhat indirect, but the connection with Heraclitus, of all people, which may sound surprising, but that idea of, let's say, the distinction between sciencia and sapiencia, that knowledge can actually blind us to truth rather than lead us to it. Uh, that, uh, of course, is, is very Heraclitean. And I read an article years ago in which um, the author described Augustine as a Christian Heraclitus. And it was on vision and it was talking about time and such. And I thought, oh, that's, you know, it's an interesting uh, phrase with describing Augustine. But then it, as I thought about it more, I thought, well, maybe there's more to that description. Yes, in terms of um, knowledge and wisdom, but then also in terms of introspection. And that's where this project, let's say, departs. So I, I talk a lot about, let's say, the dialectically constituted self in Heraclitus, uh, but especially in Augustine. So a way of connecting it, let's say, with contemporary issues, um, and which, which I do in this new book, um, is first of all to say, look at our context. As you mentioned a moment ago, we are constantly bombarded. We are torn apart. The postmodern condition is one of a doubt about any stable identity. This obviously departs very much from the modern view in which we are, uh, are autonomous, discrete units. We are pollucid to our, ourselves. So, so how do we make sense of this? Interestingly, I think that mm -hmm. Augustine in some ways anticipates or, or at least broaches this topic, and, and not just Augustine, but um, Jean-Louis Cré Etienne, in his L'Espace Antérieur, 2014, talks about how the ancients had this sense that we are complex entities, that we have this sort of porosity, to use one of William Desmond's phrases, one of my PhD supervisors, 
And they see this as paradoxical, but they don't see it as contradictory. So they have a sense of how we are discrete um, individuals, but we're also organically related to everything around us. And they can hold both, both of these things in tension and struggle with that question. Um, so I found that really fascinating with Augustine. So exploring that and especially radicalizing that discussion of imago dei, that if we really are grounded in and created in God's image, then there's a part of us that in principle will always exceed complete comprehension and understanding. So that really leaves us with a conundrum. If there's a, a an aspect of us that we can never even possibly begin to understand in this life, uh, how do we how do we go about making sense uh, of our lives? And so I think Augustine has a variety of methods for doing that. So first, I look at um, his approach to the dialogue genre at Kasikiakum, uh, moving to the uh, soliloquies, that specific method, uh, and then narratio, this attempt to narrate or re-narrate one's experience and find deeper meaning in it, and finally confessio, this yes narration but now uh in uh or, or directly with god and, and how that um conversation so to speak is is what is constituting uh augustine's identity that one cannot know truth apart from god and so in speaking to god god in a variety of ways is uh responding to augustine augustine is coming to know himself through that engagement with the divine so that's the essence of the book. And then the kind of upshot of it, uh, I think, uh, not that I'm a psychologist or anything like that, but I think it's psychologically relevant uh, insofar as it really challenges us to think about the essence of life itself. That yes, we have particular challenges in life, but life itself is a conundrum, a challenge, especially because of our finitude and our mortality. And Augustine talks about this. Uh, this is present in Heraclitus. It's present in Seneca, Marcus Aurelius. This, this utter groundlessness of the human being and how we try to deal with that. I think this also goes back to what Augustine is saying about creation, that created things are good and they are given to be by God. However, we also have to, to note them for what they are. And Sean Hannon has a really excellent article on this, I think from 2014, and he's talking about Heidegger in particular, and the, the idea of being a shepherd of being and appreciating things for what they are as good, but also not clinging to them in that, uh, let's say, selfish way or that possessive way, which, yes, it's an ethical problem, because now we are prizing things and, and engaging in a kind of selfishness and uh, not engaging in love, but it's also a uh, mistake of the intellect because we're treating created things as if they could be infinite, which in a variety of places, Augustine says that he did, not least of all, surprisingly, when uh, his friend dies, as recounted in book four of the Confessiones, and Augustine really goes through this profound crisis. So those are the, the uh, I guess, some of the essential themes of this new work. Uh, but a lot of them, uh, I think, were uh, taken from the, the first book I wrote and, and eventually transformed over the course of time into the product that I just finished. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I look forward to discussing your second book as well. Um, and uh, I want to thank you. Uh, thank you, Dr. Matthew Knotts, for taking the time and discussing. 
um, your uh, your book, um, and I hope uh, uh, you know listeners will will go and read the book because the book is very rich. It's dense. I have to say, it's because you bring together a variety of uh, layers and and you weave a nice tapestry. So I encourage uh, listeners who want to who have an interest in Augustine, or even if you don't have an interest in Augustine, to 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 look at the book. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. This was wonderful. Thank you so much. Okay.